Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 394th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel, and we're broadcasting across the world this week in our ninth year. We're back this week broadcasting from the magical city of Los Angeles, from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard, where technology meets entertainment. I pop up to the Greek theatre the other night, on Saturday night, I guess, to see the Hollywood Vampires. Now, I don't know whether you know about them, but it's the Johnny Depp band that's got uh, Alice Cooper and Joe Perry, who's the lead guitarist for Aerosmith, plus some of the guys from um, Cooper's band and three of the Aerosmith guys. And uh, Marilyn Manson made an appearance, as did Stephen Tyler, and it was sensational. So put it on your bucket list if you get a chance to see the Hollywood Vampires. They've just finished, a, I think, something like 80 dates in Europe and brained them. So if you get a chance, go and see them. Now, I'm a business speaker, as you might surprise you, and I talk on subjects like disruption, how to market your business in an age of social media and customer service at retail in just time of online shopping subjects like that. However, when I say to people, I'm a speaker, they always say, oh, you're a motivational speaker. I respect, I sort of say, no, I'm really strictly a business speaker, but I do hope that I can motivate people while I'm educating them. Don't want to think that they sort of sit there and go to sleep. And I've done, <coughs> excuse me, just on 2000 business presentations where we do try to educate. Um, we don't get the interest in motivational speakers who inspire for 10 seconds and then the euphoria evaporates. You know, today it seems to be that the lust and gluttony and greed and sloth and wrath and envy and, of course, pride are admirable. I don't know why. The capitalist dream of being able to make money in exchange for doing as little as possible is now a fervent passion and it's fueled by motivational speakers and one thing that rarely makes that list but has been responsible for decades of self-delusion and misplaced optimism has been the pernicious rise of the motivational speaker to walk in the footsteps of one of these charlatans it's to take a trip down the boulevard of broken dreams these snake oil salesmen have now been elevated to almost high priest status there are so many people now selling niche solutions that the word niche itself has almost become obsolete. I think the motivational speaking sector and the business leader industry should be much more stringently regulated. We simply can't have these sharp-suited hucksters running around willy-nilly telling people that if they get up at 5am, drink a kale smoothie every morning and chant, I am great that they'll succeed beyond their wildest dreams and be buying a Lamborghini and a yacht in no time. It's absolute bullshit. The entire motivational speaker business is a fraud of the highest order. 
perhaps you can inspire as a speaker, but unless the person that's listening finds their own reason why they want to be doing what they're doing every day, you're pushing it uphill. Anyone who brands themselves as a motivational speaker is peddling fiction. You can probably get a few people to up their game and perhaps all of them to step up their activity rate for at least an hour or two, but you will not secure lasting performance improvements with motivational speakers. And rah-rah sales training doesn't work either. Perhaps a small percentage of the salespeople will take on board what you teach them to improve their performance because they've both got both desire and commitment and they really just need a bit of direction or technique. The other 90% sit there and listen and passionately want to make money, but they're either not passionate about what they're doing or they're not committed enough to get off their ass and change and do whatever's required to be more effective and efficient. Now, salespeople who aren't performing to their full potential are usually being poorly led and mismanaged. An hour or two in a room with a charismatic speaker isn't going to fix it. They'll probably have a few laughs, but getting them to close more business, ask for them to get higher prices, close more predictably, secure appointments with decision makers, ring fence accounts to protect them from the competition, etc., it's not going to happen unless you put some real thought and effort into training your people systematically and well. Now, because I've been on the speaking circuit for 25 years or something, I know a hell of a lot of speakers, so I've probably just pissed off half the speaking ground. But think about the rah-rahs that you go to. You go in and you listen to some guy tell you how wonderful you can be and all it takes is um, printing out your um, your goals for the day and putting them on a shower wall and chanting them while you're having a shower. <laughs> well, lots of luck with that. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.75 million daily subscribers. It just takes about 30 seconds to read, sometimes 45 seconds, sometimes a minute. And every day we tackle a different subject. We talk about just about everything. We talk about advances in medicine. We talk about blockchain. We talk about um, all sorts of cryptocurrencies. talk about autonomous cars, fast rail, you know, just about everything. And today's newsletter, the one that went out this morning, is about researchers in Spain who have developed a 3D bioprinter capable of producing human skin that's adequate for transplant into patients or for testing drugs and cosmetics. Now, this will totally change the medical world. People who suffer bad burns, this is a fantastic product and it's really, it's really a great newsletter and worth reading. And the one thing you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is my newsletter. I slave over it for about two and a half days to write five newsletters each week, so I'd love you to read them. <laughs> I'd hate to think that I was just sort of wasting my time. And the one thing you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard newsletter. And to get it, you simply go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com. And subscribe. It's easy, and it's easy t- to get rid of it if you don't want it. If you don't want it, then simply tick the unsubscribe box, and it disappears immediately. Not like some of these newsletters where, no matter what you do, it's impossible to get rid of them. 
Now, Russia's parliaments approved a law that might allow the country to cordon off its internet from the rest of the world, creating an unprecedented sovereign internet. And if Russia is able to pull this off, it will be the most tangible step yet towards fracturing the web. It will also most certainly be a harbinger of things to come in other countries. By November this year, internet service providers will have to adopt new routing and filtering technology and grant regulators the authority to monitor directly and censor content that it deems objectionable. But the real groundbreaker is the intent to create a national domain name system by 2021, probably as a backup to the existing global system that translates domain names into numerical addresses. But if Russia builds a workable version and switches it on, traffic would not be able to enter or leave Russia's borders. In fact, you know, it means turning on a standalone Russian internet, disconnected from the rest of the world. Now, if you're a government that is autocratic, then you probably think it's a wonderful thing to do to totally control the internet and what everybody reads and hears. And uh, unless we do something in Washington fairly fast, that's a situation we could be found in. And no country's ever tried to build its own internet architecture before, even China, which is, I guess, the world leader when it comes to internet censorship, has built its great firewall and the existing global DNS. It filters traffic, but it's still part of the same worldwide addressing system, and everybody can get internet from all over the world. But the authors of Russia's law say it will make the internet in Russia more resilient against outside attacks. Now, that sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me, but, and I reckon its main effect is to vastly expand the government's control of the internet and its underlying infrastructure so that the public get just one version of what's happening and it's always favourable to the government. So it's far from clear that by creating a standalone internet, whether it's either technically possible or financially wise, Russia attempted to disconnect from the global internet about four years ago in a test case, but foreign data still managed to get in. And successfully pulling this off will require billions of rubles in investments by Moscow or the telecom industry not counting any losses to the economy if testing the system causes service outages. And don't forget, Russia is still a fairly small economy. You know, we tend to think of Russia as an equivalent to the United States, but its its economy is actually only about a bit over half the size of California's. So it's not a big economy. So, it, you know, it's not going to take much bashing around. And regardless, plenty of emerging markets will be watching the Russian test case closely. And if Moscow pulls it off, other governments would be tempted to follow suit. People like Venezuela, Cuba, you know, all those countries, you know, all the ones that welcome free speech. Russia's internet penetration is about 78% and steadily growing, which makes it one of the largest online populations in the world. And with more Russians online and with more conflict in cyberspace, the Russian government feels greater need to assert what it calls digital sovereignty, 
loosely defined. It's the right to control data and online content within its borders. Russians should brace for an internet that will soon be as restrictive as China's. And the result is that, or the reality is that Chinese people have not really known any internet beyond the heavily censored one that's been in place since the 90s. Russians, on the other hand, have had virtually uncensored internet up until 2012 or so, and that makes the Kremlin wary of overplaying its hand, especially as internet privacy and freedom has been one of the few things that Russians have shown a willingness to protest over. And once um, the younger population have got access to a free internet, it's going to be damn hard to shut them off. And the younger generation's pretty inventive. They could come up with all sorts of ways to get around it. Now, the EU treats data privacy as a fundamental human right. The US treats data privacy as a responsibility of the tech companies. And uh, the US government only moves to act once a significant breach has happened. Russia and China, on the other hand, see data privacy and state surveillance as inherently intertwined. The state is the basic actor online and its users are just simply subjects. As the internet continues to develop and become more integrated into more and more aspects of our daily lives, these fundamentally differing views will clash more frequently. So brace yourselves. It's going to be an interesting ride. My interview guest today is Keith Agoda. He is a great guy, very smart, terrific to speak with, and I managed to track him down in Italy, sitting in Florence, probably having a a, um, Chianti or something in the square. And Keith Keith is the co-founder and CEO of Producers Market. And he envisions disrupting the $4 trillion agriculture value chain industry by creating a world that's fully organic and using the blockchain to empower farmers with better payment systems and provide end consumers with more transparency to the source of production. Now, what it means is recently in California, for example, there was a, um, a scare with cos lettuce and the, some cos lettuce had salmonella. The problem was they didn't know where it came from. It could have come from one of, I don't know, 50 farms. So all the produce from 50 farms had to be taken off the shelves and destroyed where what Keith's got happening is that they would be able to identify that that lettuce that's got salmonella or whatever it's got came from Fred Smith's farms in such and such a place and they would be able to isolate it to that farm and that would save an enormous amount of money and an enormous amount of investigations and seems to me to make fantastic sense. So Keith's a great interview and I'll have him back in just a minute. This is Bob Pritchard.
Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where over the past nine years, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people, and we talk about their interesting and exciting new initiatives. We talk to the entrepreneurs behind these projects about the services they provide, the challenges that they face, and we try to work out underneath it all what it is that drives them, what makes them tick, what is it that makes them special. Well, Keith Agoda is the co-founder and CEO of Producers Market, and uh, I've reached Keith in Florence, Italy. I mean, you know, it's pretty tough for some people. You know, we keep hearing about how tough all these entrepreneurs make it. And here's a guy sitting, I'm sure he's sitting in the square in Florence having a beverage of some, probably a Chianti, and uh, having a good time. So, you know, I used to feel sorry for uh, entrepreneurs, but I'm losing that a bit. Now, Keith, Keith has worked in the supply side of the agricultural industry for the past decade. He's a founder of the commercial urban agriculture firm Sky Vegetables, and they pioneered the integration of greenhouse hydroponic agriculture in urban environments. Now, prior to his work with Producers Market, Keith spent four years on international procurement development with leading organic brands in the United States. He speaks four languages. English, Spanish, producer and buyer. He maintains on-the-ground relationships with leading growers, packers and processors globally and works every day to transform the industry to return more profits back to the farmers. And we all know how important that is. But what's really interesting about this is Keith's passion for supporting producers. Well, that was the inspiration behind Producers Market Platform. And he envisaged disrupting the four trillion dollar agricultural value chain industry by creating a world that is fully organic and using the blockchain to empower farmers with better payments and provide end consumers with more transparency to the source of production. Now, we all know the benefits that um, blockchain can bring in getting rid of the middlemen and um, making transactions extremely transparent and Agriculture seems like the perfect way to do it. We've been reading in the papers here over the past few days about the issues with um, 
with Mexico with tomatoes and with um, avocados and other things. And it seems to me that um, something like this is desperately needed. So, hi, Keith. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right across the world. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that lovely introduction. And, um, you know, I will say that it is nice to be in Italy right now, but certainly uh, entrepreneurship is not as glamorous as it may look. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. (laughs) It isn't isn't for most people, but I'm not sure about this one. you were in a at a, a conference called Seeds and Chips in Milan um, over the last week. What was the what's the what what was the main thing you brought out of that conference? Yeah, it was really a wonderful event and got to meet other uh, innovative entrepreneurs transforming, you know, the agricultural value chain, finding ways to make it more efficient, more transparent. And, you know, I got to actually uh, have a one on one meeting with the former president of Nigeria, who's a farmer himself. And we got to speak about, you know, how important it is to find more direct markets for farmers and how um, so much of the industry sees digital technology and different tools like blockchain, but also more basic tools like smartphone applications and social media to be able to connect with the stories, with the value chains in order to create more direct relationships on a B2B and B2C uh, perspective and have the opportunity to create greater efficiencies, more transparency, and ultimately, as you mentioned, uh, more money for the farmers. That's ultimately what I think uh, drives farmers and the relationships is, you know, how do we get them more money and how do we pay them on time? Yes, yeah, because farmers really get screwed, don't they? By the, the middlemen really mess up the industry. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's been kind of part of the structure for, for hundreds upon hundreds of years where the farmer takes the greatest risk. Um, not only are they paying labor and, you know, planting seeds and paying for fertilizers and doing the harvest, but they're also have the risk of the biological environment where they can't really control the sun or the rain every day. And so, you know, I think for the farmers and, and as a finance person, it's a very simple equation. There's risk and then there's reward. And the larger risk you take, the greater reward you should get. Yeah. And that certainly isn't the case. Do you get in your, before we get into exactly what you're doing, but do you, is there enormous pushback from the distributors and perhaps the um, um, retailers, the major retailers against um, the blockchain introduction, which will cut out the middleman? Middleman. Correct. Well, it's a multi-layered, confusing, complex situation. On one hand, you have groups like Walmart, who after, you know, the romaine lettuce recall of last year and other, you know, recalls where they weren't able to uh, trace their produce back to the source and they had to throw out a lot of product and there's a lot of, uh, you know, consumers who were insecure and scared about their food quality because, you know, Walmart, like other retailers, couldn't track rapidly where their products were were coming from. And it created a whole uh, issue with liability, with insurance, and of course, with recalls and having to throw out lots of products. So on one hand, you have uh, retailers like Walmart really pushing the industry into saying, we're going to use 
blockchain traceability. And for Walmart, it's with uh, the IBM Food Trust, who we also are partnered with, to say we want all of our providers of leafy greens and produce eventually to be on these traceability systems so that we can track all of our fresh produce to source. So on a B2B level, there's a lot of savings and also um, quality assurance type of things that can be benefited from. And many retailers uh, in the US and globally are are adopting it for that reason. Um, A second thing that's happening is the consumers. Uh, Every day, more and more consumers are demanding from their retailers, from their CPGs, consumer product good brands, that the sourcing is done in a way that is more sustainable, that has proper uh, payment to workers, that properly treats the environment, that the product itself, for example, might be non-GMO or certified organic or certified vegan and so on and so forth. So at the same time, you have consumers putting pressure up the value chain to have more transparency and traceability. I think where it gets a little confusing is a lot of the large buyers on the retail distribution CBG, CB, um, CPG side, sorry, it's confusing with CBD, but CPG side is that, um, they aren't set up to go out there and start to you know, have employees at all the farms and go to those small farmers and see how the operations are doing. They're just not set up for that type of procurement system. They are set up to be able to buy and then resell or buy and package and sell. And so it puts the onus on the producer. And now with the digital technology integration, we're hoping that the, you know, the large buyers around the world that maybe would like to, for business reasons, do transparent sourcing or be able to help more farmers and such can do so more efficiently with digital technology. And ultimately the traders, the brokers, the groups between the, you know, the growers and the end market, they're um, preventing transparency. And while some appreciate the service they provide connecting, uh, there's many others that see them as a kind of extractive force to the industry that limits transparency. Sure. So where did, where did you get your passion for agriculture? Were you brought up on a farm and spent your life picking radishes or something? Or how did, where did that come from? Wow. Great question. Well, I grew up uh, just outside Boston in a place called Chestnut Hill, um, Newton, Massachusetts. And I had a little forest in my backyard and I always loved going out and just playing in the dirt. And my, my mom would grow vegetables sometimes. But really, I think agribusiness really captured me when I was probably in second or third grade when I, I took a field trip to the cranberry bog. And I think same year we went to a maple syrup uh, farm and I was just blown away to see how people were working with nature, working with water, working with plants in order to create the food. I just thought it came from, you know, the cabinet or from the supermarket and and to have those experiences to go to farms just blew me away. And, um, you know, I had studied uh, management and, and, you know, looked at finance and such, but it was always too boring for me. I, I just loved the idea of like a biological living, you know, value chain and being able to innovate within it. So if you look at the population of the US, let's say it's 350 million for, um, just for argument's sake, 
what percentage of those people really give a rat's ass where their where their product comes from? I know that you know there's I'm I'm around I'm around West Hollywood, so I can imagine that people in West Hollywood really want to know what farm it comes from. But people in Podunk, Iowa, probably don't give a rat's ass, do they? Uh, that's a very interesting comment. And I think there's pockets of people, even in places like Iowa or Montana or uh, Florida or wherever that are getting more and more interested in this kind of local food movement or foodie or even organic organics become this mainstream word. It's been very commercialized. And I think as, as someone starts to learn about food, they start asking questions and they start researching and the internet has an almost infinite number of resources to learn. And I think one of the questions you end up starting to ask is like, where did this uh, cereal or this head of lettuce or, you know, where did this ice cream, where did the milk, where did it come from? How did it get here? And in what way was it grown and how does it uh, impact uh, the farmer, the place it was grown? So I think it's a level of curiosity. And to be frank, you know, most people look at price, you know, everyone wants to, take care of their family. And I think organic historically was driven by moms looking out for their kids and their families. Yep. So I think that, you know, they're really concerned about food safety and food health and also price. And so getting to the next level of knowing exactly what pharma came from, I don't think the average or even more than average consumer really cares at this point. I think what's important is that the consumers can have trust in the products they're buying, especially if they're paying, let's say, a premium for a product that's organic or fair trade, um, or if it says local, or if it was supposed to be harvested yesterday and it's a fresh, you know, broccoli or, or whatever else that at least we should have the option or the availability of the information of the data to learn more and to have that truth if we want to uncover it. And I don't think it's about, you know, putting in front of everybody's face where everything came from and how it impact the environment. I mean, to me, that's just overblown and, and ridiculous and it's not going to achieve anything. I think the purpose is about as we um, as the evolution of the digital technology across the value chain uh, integrates into applications with smartphones, as the data aggregates and it becomes usable to tell stories, that this information isn't just available to, you know, Walmart or Whole Foods or Nestle or Unilever, but it also is made available to the end consumer who can learn more if they choose to. And that's where I think the cell phone is such a powerful tool where um, in the near future, consumers will be able to go down their aisle and with their phone learn more about a product as they wish that would that would be sensational so you've got um i can imagine in in countries like the u.s um that it may be easier to implement sort of blockchain tracking or whatever the term is than it is say in Mexico, for example, um, I'm a, I always thought that California was the bread basket of um, of America, but I well the food basket of America. But I'm beginning to think that Mexico is the <laughs> the food basket of America. Is it harder in in countries that are developing to um, to implement any sort of technology? 
Very great question. Um, you know, you'd be, I think, a little bit surprised to see that in places like Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia, there's a lot of farmers now that have smartphones yep. and that could use this technology. And especially, you know, it's a good point. Mexico is becoming an incredibly important supply source for the U.S., especially around fresh produce. Yep. And with fresh produce, a lot of it is moving into this system called Global Gap which requires some level of provenance or traceability, not digital, but just understanding where produce is coming from for a, um, you know, food safety perspective. And so when it comes to the fresh value chain, I do feel it, it will become easier and easier to integrate, you know, traceability on blockchain, let's say, as it gets integrated into an application form that's easy to use, that's efficient to use. I think where this technology could be even, I don't want to say more impactful, but has a really interesting impact is when we start looking at projects like in India, in Africa and Southeast Asia, where we're talking about groups that don't have smartphones, that are very, very small farmers, let's say of cacao or of coffee or, yep. uh, or of cassava or some grain. And they bring it to either a trader or collector who just takes it from them, then brings it to the processing facility, or the farmer brings it to the processing facility. At that point, there's really no tracing to the source. Uh, oftentimes, we don't know what the farmers are being paid. We don't really know, you know how much they've actually harvested, what their credibility is. And I think with this, uh, with the blockchain technology, as well as distributed ledger technology, and its, its uses as essentially a sophisticated accounting system or an open accounting system, we can start to use the aggregators, so the co-ops, associations, the packers, the processors, the groups that collect product from the small farmers or, or any size farmer and be able to start registering transactions uh, digitally for everything that comes in is sold so that we can start to create data sets and, and also the traceability of the products that are you know brought to the facility, but also the data sets of the farmers themselves. Mm. So where we have, you know, so many unbanked people in the rural world and in emerging markets, we can start creating unique data sets that allow them to start accessing microloans, finance, things to help them scale based upon their performance. And, you know, without that data, without that risk profile, Profile, that assessment, it becomes really difficult for these groups to gain loans to be able to get their own assets. And so I think a big part of this technology is about the actual monetary transactions and the recording of contracts and transactions on open ledgers, not necessarily for a global public open consensus, but within a, a private network. I think there's a, a, a real power there to uh, support farmers around the world. And ultimately, uh, with this type of traceability and information, we can help uh, these groups now access uh, larger markets more directly and return money uh, back. So uh, when it comes to blockchain and, and distributed ledger technology, um, it's wide ranging, it's impact. And in, in, as many have noted, uh, agriculture and the agricultural value chain is going to be one of the first, I think, adopters of it. So I was thinking that um, does it really 
it doesn't really cut out the middleman because I was just thinking you, you've got your farmer picking these heads of lettuce or whatever, and um, it's still got to be packed. It's still got to be moved from the farm to wherever. So you're still going to have those middlemen in there, aren't you? So does it really get somebody out or does it really just trace the product? Very good question. And we don't look at middleman as a bad word. And, and we're relatively agnostic to how each value chain comes together. And the technology itself doesn't require removing anyone. And we don't look at a packer or processor as a intermediary or middleman because they're ultimately adding value to raw materials to make them uh, marketable or commercialized into a domestic and global marketplace. Um, where we see this technology uh, having an impact on, let's say, making the value chain more efficient, i.e. maybe removing intermediaries or limiting them, is this opportunity to basically put more visibility on where products are coming from, uh, the value chains it moves in, so that we can start to look at more direct purchasing and more direct purchasing contracts. So um, let's say a major retailer, let's say Kroger, you know, wants to uh, source directly coffee from Guatemala. And right now they work through a trader in Texas who essentially is buying from a facility who buys from the farmers and then they're selling it to Kroger from this kind of trader or broker who just uses, let's say, warehouses for physical movement of product. And their only goal really is to buy as low as possible and sell as high as possible in many cases. Yeah. Right. And this is the service they're essentially providing. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's not to, again, demonize or say, uh, this is horrible practice. This is just the way the global value chain has worked for for as long as there's probably been agriculture, right? It's a market forces of the people in the middle connecting the producer to the market, buy low and they sell high. And what we're saying is, how can we transform this system as much as we can in order to just saying, uh, how do more stability, you know, less of the speculation of markets, of seasons, of how materials or prices are going to move up and down based upon what's happening in Russia or what's happening with um, a storm in Argentina or and so on and so forth and start to look at creating more sanity because when the producer knows that they have a set contract for a set amount of harvest at a set price, they can start planning out seasons. They can start focusing more energy on growing and creating a great product instead of working with lots of different traders and brokers and trying to play the market to get the best possible price. So really it's about utilizing this technology to bring more transparency, which in turn brings more trust. And with that trust, we can start to create more direct contract and future and forward contract relationships so that we can move this industry to more sanity and less of this kind of third party speculation between buyer and seller. I, I don't know much about um, greens and that sort of product, but listening to farmers that produce say, eggs or milk or things like that, all I ever hear is that the middlemen are making all the money. And that, you know, a farmer's getting 10 cents a litre for his milk and their supermarkets are selling it for $3 or something. 
So isn't it isn't it true that the middlemen are making most of the money? Well, the intermediaries are making most of the money. And how the hell do you say to somebody, well, we've got this great plan and one of the things we're going to do is you're going to make less money? I can see them being thrilled about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a great point you're hitting on, Bob. And, and I think each value chain is unique and – and it is an unfortunate truth that, again, the farmers are taking the risk and oftentimes the intermediaries are, um, you know, my experience working in the value chain, you know, everyone is concerned with their margin, right? The distributor says, I need to hit my 20% margin. The retailer says, I need to hit my 40% margin. And then you go to the farm and they go, what's the margin, right? <laughs> exactly. so they're not looking at their farm many times as a business and they're just basically subject to whoever the buyer is that they have contact to in the local area. Part of what we're building with our marketplace and with our platform is to onboard a, a producer and instead of looking at each farmer as a commodity selling into a whole commoditized system, how do we start to look at each farmer, each producer as their own story? and give them their own profile and help them share their stories, their photos, their videos, their content, their social media, and, and get that out to a broader market globally. So now they can start to attract buyers outside of their current channels. And, you know, there's, for example, there's over 80 to 90 food expos around the world each year that we've identified as a, as a really interesting target for groups that export, you know, food products to the world. Uh, now, let's say you take your farmer in California or your coffee company in Colombia. How many of those 90 events are they attending each year? Maybe three or four max. And so they're really limited to their network that they have already established or that they've built over the years in order to sell their outputs. But with digital marketing, digital technology, and with authenticity that they are who they say they are, they are the source, they are the producer, we're envisioning a, a immediate future where they're going to open up lots of new buyer leads from around the world who are looking for them and looking for their products. And by diversifying their sales channels, perhaps we can start to give them more uh, supplier power, more negotiating power on their outputs. So thinking about this, doesn't it really work for the big guys, like in California, sun growers or whatever their name are, name is that um, grow, you know, ninety percent of the world's carrots or whatever they grow. Um, doesn't it work much better for them where they've got the muscle to be able to trot around the world and sell their story than it does for Fred Smith, farmer who's got you know two thousand acres in the middle of somewhere, who, you know, his biggest problem is trying to feed his kids. Um, how does how does he take advantage of this? Yeah, it's a great point, and you know, you know, the large carrot grower. I know one of them, Grimway Farms. You know, and these, uh, you know, really large companies like Driscoll, who you guys probably buy some of your berries from. Um, these groups have international marketing offices, right? They have offices all over the world: Dole, Chiquita, yeah. you know, Foxy. These these groups have sales reps around their countries, around the world, that are already kind of connecting into a lot of markets directly and working through sales reps and and certain uh, distributors in order to get their products out. But to your point, the 
let's say smaller or less organized groups that maybe their marketing office consists of, you know, the lady in the office who's also the office manager, or maybe they've outsourced their marketing materials to someone. So they have a brand and a website, but they haven't updated it in 15 years. And so what we're really looking to do with our platform is to support that mid or even small size grower by allowing them to come onto our platform, create a profile, connect into these digital marketing tools, connect into the traceability tools we're building in right now uh, with the IBM Food Trust and be able to access markets more directly as if they were a foxy or a grimway or an earthbound farms right that they can take advantage of this digital you know member network that we're building and be able to have that power as if they were part of a large you know group that gives them that type of market access but doing so uh without the cost yeah yeah because you know it seems to me the big guys have got the muscle they've got lobbyists they've got cross knows what else that can that are really working about increasing their profit they're not worried about the the farmers in particular they're worried about um increasing the profit in the middle you know i often hear people say you know the quickest way to go broke is to get a big order from somebody like costco because they'll screw you down to the absolute lowest price possible um they don't care whether you make a profit or not. If you disappear next week, that's bad luck. Um, how, do, how do you deal with those sort of massive buyers? Or don't you? Or is that just... Yeah, it's These are systemic problems. And I think what we're really looking to do is open up as many options, A, B, C grade options for all outputs domestically, globally, by just putting everyone onto the map, bringing as many right. users purchasers, as many farming users, producer users onto our platform and consumers onto our platform of the social media, even though we are a B2B site. So I'll give you an example that is really heartbreaking that I've had to see firsthand and live, uh, you know, in the produce industry. Let's say, let's use the Mexico example. You're a grower of mangoes in Mexico. And you get an order from a group in Rotterdam in the in the Netherlands. And it's a container of, you know, uh, 1,800 boxes of um, of Tommy Atkins mangoes, and you got to send them out there. So you send them, and when they arrive, the buyer there sends back a photo of one mango that has black dots on it and says, okay, you know, I need a 20% discount. Check out this photo. And you're the farmer, and you're like, holy gosh. Like, first of all, I can't just go and fly – to Rotterdam today to check out and make sure that I'm not getting screwed here. Um, secondly, um, right now, if they reject my container, now I'm stuck with 1,800 boxes of mangoes in Rotterdam that I might have to now throw out, even though I paid for all the you know yeah, harvest pack yeah. boxes, shipment, everything, insurance, customs broker, whatever else it took to get it there. And now you're pretty much like, well... I kind of just have to accept it. And even though this buyer may or may not be honest, how can they tell me it's a 20% discount on everything and taking a photo of one mango that has some black dots on it? Yeah. Right. 
and because it's um, this is the situation, the farmers oftentimes have to just accept it, right? Yep. Because they don't have people who are there to go right to the office and check and make sure they're not getting screwed, or don't have other groups that they can go to right on the spot and say, "Hey, this group's kind of giving us a hard time with our mangoes. Will you take this at a five percent discount yep. or ten percent discount?" Right? And so right now the grower is pretty much at a you know loss of negotiating power and a loss of kind of supply chain power where maybe they got 50% down, you know, in the U S example, you know, it's usually 0% down and then it's like 30 days or 45 days terms before they're even paid. And so there are these situations where, where farmers have been made to look at themselves as competition. So I'm a mango grower in Mexico and you're a mango grower in Mexico. Now we're competition because we're both trying to sell the Safeway, yeah. right? But yeah. in reality, there's plenty of people who want to eat these mangoes, yeah. right? And the less farmers are looking at themselves as competition to each other and more they're looking at themselves as part of the same you know, side of the supply chain equation, they can start to actually you know, work together through different platforms, through networks in order to access markets, in order to have a stronger network so that they're not getting taken advantage of as much. And the solution isn't overnight, but the more that farmers are working together and the more that there's transparency and there's more options of buyers, the more it's going to flip in the, you know, the profit equation for the farmers. We're running really short of time, but three quick questions. Um, are you just into agricultural products or do you, are you going to look at things that moo, cluck and grunt? Yeah, great question. So we um, are right now exploring, for example, forestry, sustainable forestry. Right. Because for our marketplace technology and our marketplace application, uh, all these raw material value chains, it functions pretty much the same uh, from a technological standpoint. So we're looking at forestry with the major group in Brazil to start testing uh, seafood and also looking at cattle and, uh, you know, chicken and other uh, poultry and meat as well. So we're really looking at all agricultural value chains. Okay. Um, last question. I'm a, I'm a big crypto fan, as you, as you may know. Um, how do you see crypto being used in the um, agricultural value chain? Amazing question. Thank you for asking it. I see two ways. One is is short term. One is kind of long term. The short term is the uh, tokenization of assets. So I believe there's lots of people around the world that want to own part of a forest or part of an organic farm. Or I'm here in Italy, maybe they want to own part of a hundred year old olive oil operation. And there's going to be this immediate opportunity that we're looking at too as a company to uh, tokenize assets and be able to distribute these uh, digital securities or security tokens to uh, crowdfund or liquidate some of these agricultural value chain assets. And uh, I believe that's going to be, you know, in the next 12 months, we're going to start to see more and more projects pop up where someone who's in 
uh, England can go out there and buy some of a mango farm in Panama or olive oil operation in Italy for as low as a $500 or $50 investment. Uh, so I see the, the security tokens and the digitization and securitization of these assets around the value chain as an immediate future. I believe in the long term, the real exciting thing is when farmers and the input suppliers, the people who buy from farmers are all using a cryptocurrency based on their cell phone in order to do the contracts and transactions and the movement of value, the currency, right? The current that goes between these different uh, parts of the supply chain and using instead of a fiat currency, instead of a normal banking system, which is clunky, which costs a lot, which has delays and so on and so forth, that we can move into a system that, you know, transactions are almost free and the time it takes to transact is almost one second. Yep. And I believe that's going to be uh, a major transformation of the whole industry. But that's long term because I do not see farmers anywhere starting to like start sending each other Ethereum or Bitcoin or anything like that. I think that's totally not going to happen anytime soon. But I do think it's going to start to happen in emerging markets. You know, you see in Kenya, yeah. places, um, you know, like Venezuela, where it's starting to look like cryptocurrency has this utilitarian use for transaction because of the instability of the fiat currency in these countries. I believe there's a, a, a shorter window that they'll start to use crypto. But in terms of you know the industry going off the US dollar or the euro or the Mexican peso, that's going to take some time. But I'm excited for that to happen for sure. I, I think it's going to take less time than you think it is. I, I'm, I'm a great believer. Keith, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I'm sorry to disturb you um, having a drink in um, in Florence. I really feel feel sorry for you. Um, now, if you want to contact Keith and find out more about Producers Market, go to producersmarket.com. That's producers, P-R-O-D-U-C-E-R-S, Market. Com. I could continue with this conversation for ages because it's really interesting to me. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show. Coming to you on Voice America Business Network. and broadcasting across the world today from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. How much is your brand worth? Although brand valuation can be difficult to measure, you know, a brand's a pretty intangible asset, knowing its worth is useful not only for your business strategy but also for your marketing strategy. Having a powerful brand in today's competitive market is critical to standing out. More marketing leaders are investing in brand building to nurture their brand image and create more value. It's happening more and more. 
and a surprising 90% of searchers haven't made up their mind about a brand before starting their search. These insights can help you understand your brand's true value and tells you what you can do to fully harness the power of your brand. Now, many companies today invest in building their identity through their brand so they can stand out in a very noisy space so they're in a position to compete and so they can drive growth. Over the years, many companies have tried to measure brand value, brand power and brand equity and businesses are recognising the importance of brand building, which means they need to allocate a portion of their budget for just this purpose. And calculating the ROI of a brand has also become a good indicator of a brand's value. Here's some some key branding statistics that you really should know. 94% of consumers are likely to be loyal to a brand that offers transparency. 64% of consumers say shared values are the main reasons they have a trusted relationship with a brand. 42% say they totally distrust bands. And 65% of people feel that an emotional connection to a brand, it's because they care about people like me. So it's really important. And popular brands have a lower risk, and a lower risk leads to higher brand value. So... Brand power can promote growth by leveraging reputation and customer loyalty. And this is demonstrated by people like Apple, Coca-Cola and Tesla. I mean, many people pay for the name when they ask for a Coke. I've been to plenty of taste tests where people prefer Pepsi and then go off and buy a Coke. Um, And people don't think twice about paying double for premium brands like Apple, for example. Powerful brands have a higher value, and this goes beyond anything financial. It encompasses customer loyalty, customer satisfaction, and the consumer's willingness to pay for a higher-priced product. When looking at the value of your brand, it's important to consider trademark, logo, brand colors, packaging, digital assets, and marketing strategy. It's everything that is associated with your brand and influences your brand's perception of you. So a brand's value is measured according to three core components, the financial performance of the product, the role the brand plays in purchase decisions, and the brand's competitive strength. In business, building your brand's identity not only influences your customer's perception and drives customer loyalty, but it also impacts the valuation of your brand in the longer term. So... Build your brand, it makes a hell of a difference to your reputation in the marketplace and your sales. And remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. As I've said a million times before, anybody can do the ordinary. If you're always trying to be normal, you'll always be boring. And you'll never know just how fantastic you might be able to be. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday. Well, and I will again be broadcasting across the world from our studios in Hollywood, where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile, I hope you have a great week. Continue to be successful, because when you think about it, the alternative to success really 
sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.